Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Kamala Shamsi. Kamala is the author of six novels, the most recent of which, Home Fire, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, shortlisted for the Costa Best Novel Award, the Books in My Bag Readers Award and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature, and it won the London Hellenic Prize and the Women's Prize for Fiction. Three of her novels have received awards from Pakistan's Academy of Letters. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and was named a Granter Best of Young British Novelist in 2013. She was also awarded a Southbank Arts Award in 2018. Um, welcome to our shelves, Kamala. It's really wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Uh, it's very wonderful to be here, Lucy. Thank you. Well, I'm going to jump straight into our questions today. Sometimes I do a little kind of prelim where we chat a little bit about other issues, but I feel there's such a lot to talk about when it comes to the first two books that um, are currently on your bedside table, mm. because they're the latest Virago modern classics titles, which you've written some brilliant introductions to. So would you like to tell our listeners um, what these books are and who they're by? Um, yes, they are Sunlight on a Broken Column and Phoenix Fled. Uh, the first one, Sunlight on a Broken Column, is a novel um, and Phoenix Fled is a collection of short stories. Um, and they were written by Athia Hussain, uh, the Indian and British writer, um, first published in uh, Sunlight in 61, I believe, and, and Phoenix Fled in 53. Um, I should probably mention that she was also my great aunt. <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful connection. <laughs> It is. And they're books that, that I love. And partly because, um, Lucy, I'm sure you've had this. All of us who've grown up um, reading have had this experience where there are books that you read first, you know, when you were relatively young and you keep returning to them and they are different books every time. And in some cases, they diminish over the years. Um, mm. And for me, these are books that that have really done the opposite. And And I'll admit the first time I read them, I must have been, I don't know, I was a teenager. I don't know if I was 14 or 16. Um, I admired them. I didn't love them mm. um, because they are, I think partly because I'd heard so much about them from my relatives and people kept talking about how beautifully they evoke a time gone by. And um, Sunlight in a Broken Column is set just before, uh, in the lead up to partition, um, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that really febrile moment um, in the Indian subcontinent. Um, 
And I was, you know, age 16 or whatever, really quite bored with the idea of, you know, <laughs> worlds gone by and beautiful evocation. I could get that at my grandmother's house. And I did a lot. I mean, I loved my grandmother, but, you know, yeah, that was around me. Um, and it was a thing where you read the book you're told about rather than the book that's on the page. Um, and I just, it, it didn't captivate me. And then I read them again when I was at university. Um, and I was really caught by how smart they were on women's lives and and on power structures and really complicated power structures to do with class and age and generation. Um, you know, I think the power structure of generation is possibly not talked about um, mm. quite enough. Um, and there's, there's a, I'm going to talk about this, this wonderful vignette in there, which is just a tiny moment, just a few pages in Sunlight in a Broken Column, but there's a, there's, the main family, the main character is this woman called Leila, who belongs to quite a grand family, uh, very aware of their status in the world. And a woman comes to call. And this woman is a courtesan. And she, mm-hmm. or she used to be. She was among the most famed courtesans. Um, and the courtesans of that time and place were known for being highly cultured. Um, you know, they knew their poetry, they knew their literature and, and their dance and, and all of that. And this is a courtesan who is no longer what she once was and has, in fact, turned to religion um, and has no money left anymore. And she comes to the great house. And, of course, the men of this house used to go to see her. But it's <laughs> the it's the women she comes to see. Um, and the grand women, so Lela's family, receive her with great courtesy because they they recognize and they appreciate this world of culture of which she's a part. Um, mm. But the the what fundamentally servants in the household are very disapproving because she's a courtesan and what yes. and they need to to sort of you know um, keep certain um, sort of upheld uphold certain standards so they don't approve at all and it's just this wonderful sort of interplay between these different women the courtesan the grand women the women who serve and Leila watching it all um, and it just says so much right in there about female power and relations and of course part of it is that the grand women of the house and look at her and they do recognize something that that you know their relation their it's never said but you know reading it you can just feel that she knows their men in certain ways you know and it's just there in there so beautifully and subtly done you put that so well, I think, explaining it. That is such a wonderful moment in, in the novel. And when I was reading it myself, it reminded me of some of the stories in Phoenix Fled, which mm. I think are themselves these wonderful sort of moments of insight into a, world, a particular world, right, that operates on very tight kind of um, strictures, structures, you know, everything in it is people have their places and moving out of their places is, is kind of very problematic and it's mm. also quite hard to do. Mm. Um, and also so much of the time it is women who seem to be negotiating their place in a world. There's that wonderful short story, um, I forget which one it is now, but with that young bride uh, who feels very out of place in a room of people who she thinks she's gone to sort of, is a drinks party in. Yeah. She's very out of place there. She doesn't know, she doesn't think she's wearing the right thing. She doesn't know what, how to talk to people. Um, and she's very aware of the world she's sort of um, she's quite scared of the world around her Mm, but she's also mm. condescending or or sort of you know very um, yeah sort of condescending towards it as well isn't she of these people who she thinks are uh, not abiding by sort of more traditional rules you know I love that story it's called The First Party and and to me it is one of the the great great short stories and and what's so brilliant is you know it's such a cliche almost to have sort of you know east and west 
kind of mm. thing, you know. So to have an Indian woman land up in an English party would, you know, not be the same thing. But here you have a much more nuanced story, which is a woman who's grown up, grown up in a much more traditional kind of India, uh, marries a man who is very enamored of a modern Anglophile world. Um, and he brings her into that. And she just, she doesn't know how to cope with it. And there are these, again, beautiful lines. There's one line where uh, she's, we're told about her, she could not understand the importance of relate, relating clothes to time and place. Yes. And, and not yes. just occasion. And and that's, a, you know, I read that and I thought, oh, of course, you know, fashion, fashion itself would have been this alien con- concept. Because if you come from a world that fundamentally believes that things are continuous and unchangeable and what was true of one generation is true of the next, how would fashion have a place in there? Um, you know, you would say there are clothes you wear for weddings and there are clothes for funerals and there are clothes for certain seasons and there are clothes for Eid. But the idea that there's a clo- that there are clothes for 1944 that are different to clothes from ni- to 1945. Yes. So bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of made, yeah, it makes you... She's very brilliant at just seeing, pinpointing exactly these very little things that, you know, mm. often these are quite kind of... Um, these are sort of domestic setups. They're not kind of grand scenes in which something kind of incredible is happening. But she pinpoints with such detail, such nuance, what makes those people in that world tick in their relationship to each other and how they're negotiating the space they're in, I think, um, which is very fascinating. Yeah. And she's also, I think, very often very sly and funny. There's a wonderful social satire. I love the line. Um, and she's talking about Indians here, but she says, London is microscopic when one Indian wishes to avoid another. <laughs> and, you know, which is a great line. Um, and a little while we have just this 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 pithy little observation: no one in decent families talks of love, you know? yeah, um, and things like that. And I, you just read them and you just sigh with such pleasure um, at that at that eye. And I think it's, it's right her observational detail. I mean, she sees inside people very clearly, but she also sees, mm. you know, all the surface stuff um, that is causing such anxiety. I mean, there's a woman, Aunt Saira, who's in agonies one day about who to invite and not to invite to a dinner for 300 people uh, because yeah. in particular, what is she to do with the, the the man from a very good family who has married for the second time, as in he hasn't divorced the first wife, he has two wives, and the second wife is, um, as it's written here, a half-caste from Calcutta. And she says, well, you know, and he insists on bringing both wives along with him wherever he goes. What am I to do? Um, <laughs> just these kinds of moments. They're wonderful. In the introduction, um, your beautiful introduction, you say that it's hard not to read something of um, Hussein's life into Layla in particular, the, the heroine of Sunlight on a Broken Column. I was wondering if you could elaborate slightly on that and maybe tell us a little bit about um, the great aunt that you knew and the writer that the world knew, if there was much of a distinction between them? There wasn't, because I mean, I, well, there wasn't, there wasn't, because I mean, part of, you know, when I read these books, I also find literally quite often family members sitting around there, which is intriguing. Um, but of course, she, <laughs> she, you know, my grandfather is in there, not, I won't tell you who, because it may not be the, the most um, flattering of depictions. Um, oh. But, but it's, um, she grew up in a family that was, quite split because parts of it were quite anglicized and parts of it were very much holding on to much more traditional mores. Um, She was someone who, you know, was, I think, incredibly intelligent, 
from a very early age and I think was sort of the first woman from her sort of socialist class and, and set to have certain educational levels, went to university, um, was a writer at partition. She, rather than staying in India, going to Pakistan, she and her husband and their children moved to London um, and she worked at the BBC World Service. I think she was, she, you know, she was in the Urdu service, would do sort of, uh, was an actor um, voicing Shakespearean roles in Urdu in translation mm. um, and also a writer, you know, and also a writer. And her editor was wow. C. Day Lewis, um, the poet, of course, now known possibly better as Daniel Day Lewis's father, but um, a great literary figure. Um, and, but to me, she was, you know, she was this great aunt who was on one hand, she was a great aunt. She's just a member of your family. But on the other hand, she was a published writer. Um, you know, which was something I had wanted to be from the time I was nine years old. Um, mm. And so I did always watch her in a particular way. And she was so stunningly beautiful. I mean, you know, even in old age, um, just in a way, there, there there's um, this legend that someone, possibly Mountbatten said, when you go to India, you must see two things, the Taj Mahal and Atiya. Uh yeah. Now there were there were two very beautiful atyas, and there's some really some arguments wow. in a very kind of in a way that could come out of one of her stories about you know <laughs> which atya it was, um, and I th and I think she probably you know to be an exceptionally beautiful and exceptionally smart woman with a great sense of independence I think was probably not the easiest thing mm. either in India of the 1940s or of England in the 1950s and. Um, I remember in one of those conversations we had when I was an adolescent, um, she was, she talked about the fact that that C. Day Lewis, which was on my mother, let's be honest, not me. I was just sitting there. But she was talking about the fact, listening in avidly, that C. Day Lewis had told her to take out a lot of the political parts of Sunlight in a Broken Column. Um, and that and she said, you know, um, in the 1950s, no one was right. interested in what an Indian woman had to say about politics. Um, and and she had deep regret about the fact that not only did she take it out, but wow. she never kept, you know, the part she'd taken out and was lost. Um, yeah, and she was very, you know, you could tell in later years for all that she oh, was, gosh. she spoke with great affection of C. Day Lewis and and um, you know his editing, but she did also she clearly understood that this was very much a comment that was both that was actually more about her gender than than even her um, race. Um, you know, um, and she, so, you know, she, yeah. she lived till 1997. Um, the, the second of the books was published in 63. Um, and she once said to me, when, I mean, I, I talk about this in, in the introduction, but it is one of the formative discussions of my life um, because I had decided so early on I wanted to write. And I must have been about 11, I think, when my mother told her this. We were in London, my family, for the summer holidays. Um, and she pulled me aside. You know, she took me away from the adults. And it really is my first memory of an adult looking at me and speaking to me in a way that was very urgent. Um, and that said there was something they really needed to tell me. Um, and she mm. said, whatever happens with your writing, no matter what people say about it or don't say about it or who reads it or doesn't read it, never stop writing because writing is a muscle and you can lose the use of it. I know because I did. That's so, that's so moving. It, it was incredible. I mean, I, I still get goosebumps sometimes when I, when I remember it. Um, 
And it was, and we know now that she did actually, she did start another novel called, which was set in London and it never, you know, but, but never finished, never published it. Um, I was going to ask you about this because um, having only written these two books mm. that are so, they're so mm. wonderful, but also it's very, it's very early in her life that she does stop writing. And obviously that story mm. you tell about her being very aware that she sort of lost the muscle, but I'm also intrigued by the fact that she never yeah. wrote anything about her life in London for what, I mean, there's no reason why she should have done, but it's interesting that she spent quite a lot of time there and was clearly very successful, but it's, this didn't sort of turn into fiction in her, in her work, right? It, so it did. And, and in India, a couple of years ago, it was actually, uh, they published some of her essays and, you know, what there was of this novel that, that starts in London, but clearly she didn't feel somehow that she could finish it. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know, what it was, you know, I know, I only know my experience, which was that it was, I lived in London a number of years before I wrote Home Fire, which is my first London novel. Um, right. And that there is something about your relationship to a place and your sense of feeling that you are able to write from within it that I didn't get until I wrote Home Fire. Um, and maybe, and I'm really speculating, which I shouldn't, because she was a very different person for me. It was a different world. But <laughs> but writer to writer, of course, you can't help wondering. Um, yeah, of course. And and so I can't help wondering if there was a way, because if you read the the, the novel and the short stories, she is so within the, that world, and she yes. knows. Maybe maybe because she was a writer who felt whose writing was so deeply invested in knowing all the subtexts of a place. Mm. Um, and being able to convey them and being knowing, you know, what the life of several generations had been. Um, and perhaps because she didn't have that in London in the same way, although she was very at ease in London and she was a, a woman who was, you know, she is not, she was the furthest thing from that character in the first party who is totally ill at ease. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, Athia was at ease and I think in any room she walked into, she commanded the room. Um, but perhaps for, for, the writerly self, she felt that there were that you need layers and layers. You need a palimpsest of knowledge about a world. Well, you're right, particularly because that's the way that these the short stories and the novels seem to work yeah. so well. If that's the kind of thing that elevates them, isn't it? Mm. And so, therefore, to be able to not have that about mm. um, a different life, it's it's fascinating. Though it seems such a they're such kind of full and fascinating works, and I think what you say, mm. you also. Make very good point in your introduction you say that they're one of the things that probably makes the book so pertinent right now because this is the second this is the second time that they've been yes. in the Virago classics yeah. list isn't yeah. it amazingly mm. but you say that because increasing numbers of people are probably living lives quite separate to the ones they or their parents mm. were born into so they can resonate with a sort of very wide audience yes they can because I, I think part of you know what Leila I think is a great character who's a heroine um of Sunlight in a Broken Column and, you know, again, to return the first party, but she's such a good counterpoint to the, the bride in the first party because Leila just mm. wants, she wants to be part of this world where women are educated and they choose who they love and they sit with men and they talk about politics and um, they aren't constrained. And yet at the same time, she recognizes that there is something very destabilizing as well about losing all of that and so she is quite torn because there are things in the in that continuous world that she really admires and appreciates 
Um, yeah. You know, and I think that's what makes her so wonderful is that she's not, she's not that heroine who says, oh, I just want to be free and escape it all. Um, she mm. is someone, I think, very much for our contemporary times who says, actually, something gets lost when you're in a world where everyone is moving around and it's all change. Um, an awful lot can be gained, but something very fundamental is lost and people perhaps don't have that same sense of certainty. Um, they don't have the same network of other people to fall back on. Um, they don't have um, rules. I mean, she's very keen on, you know, for all that she can skewer um, certain social proprieties, but she's also very keen on people, you know, having bonds with each other which are unbreakable or hard to break. Yes, yes. And she's not one of those heroines who wants to sort of throw up everything in the past and you know change her entire identity, right? She is clearly very, I think, well, for me at least, she came across as someone who is quite aware of the world that has made her into the young woman she is now. She wants to make some changes. She wants to kind of embrace new found freedoms, but she doesn't want to sort of completely toss away everything that, that built her before. No, and, and, you know, by the end, this is not really a spoiler as such to say when she she returns to her home post-partition and, and so much more of it has fallen apart to her, it is loss and fragmentation. Mm. Um, and yet and yet we also recognize that if, and she recognizes that if everything had stayed static, someone like her would have been stifled by it. And it's that constant back and forth and nuance and, and that refusal to to accept an easy answer of yeah. change is good or change is bad. Um, but it just said we are human beings caught in these shifting sands and you hold on to certain things and become more powerful for it and you lose other things and that is what you lose is a loss. I think that's what I love in her perhaps is that she's never afraid to say that what you lose is a loss even if you had to lose it in order to find yourself. Oh, you speak so beautifully about these books, Kamala. I'm so, I feel so honoured to have had the chance to talk about them with you. Um, I'm also aware that we could keep talking about them for the whole of the, uh, the whole of the podcast, but we should probably <laughs> move on. Yeah. But hopefully that will give any listeners who haven't yet um, had a chance to get hold of them, please do, because they are beautiful, beautiful books with a wonderful introduction. So on your mind, uh, Kamala, can you tell me about a recent article that you've read that's made you think? Yes, it's an, it's an article that appeared in The Guardian on the 20th of July, uh, by a wonderful writer called Zarlef Palinzai. Um, and the title is We Tried to Be Joyful Enough to Deserve Our New Lives, which, you know, you just read that and you think, oh, this is interesting. Um, and from the first sentence of it, you just feel, right, I'm in the hands of someone who's going to take me somewhere interesting. Um, well, the first two lines. So it starts, during the summer I turned 15, I felt into a prolonged depression that lasted well into my 20s. My mother, my two brothers and I had just arrived in London and because we were seeking asylum as refugees and then it sort of carries on. Um, and just that, that subclause, and because we were seeking ref asylum as refugees, it do doesn't start with I arrived as a refugee. It starts with this prolonged depression. Um, and it, I think that marks the way in which this feels to me a fundamentally very different story to any other I've read about refugees because it really looks at the psychological toll. Um, Zarlas Halimzai left Afghanistan when she was 11, I believe. Um, she'd had a very happy childhood there and she talks about that with great beauty. 
And then as the war mm. comes closer and closer, she and her family leave and, and are split up on this long journey to London and then have to go to the refugee process. Um, but she's not interested in telling us, in making us voyeurs of what it is to live in war or even of what it is to go on that long journey. Um, mm. It is what happens when you've gone through a period of huge violence around you, then this incredible journey where half your family, where your family divides in two, and then you arrive in a new place. Um, and she does talk about the difficulty of getting asylum, but it's also, it's about what it means to be somewhere where you feel completely dislocated after you've had these terrible experiences behind you. Um, and she talks about the psychology of that in beautiful ways, and it's full of these details I love. Um, some of them are quite funny, like her turning up to school, you know, school in London for the first time as, as an adolescent, and she's wearing a shell suit. <laughs> yeah, the shell suit, which was like the coolest thing in Afghanistan and possibly in Uzbekistan. And of course, all the kids are in jeans, and she just feels like a total idiot, you know. Mm. Um, and there's another very moving detail where her her mother, who's the only member of the family with any English, when she arrives, has to be the one to fill in all these forms. And these forms arrive and they say at the top, fill in block letters or oh, fill in block capitals. And they don't know what block capitals are. And they look up the dictionary and you know what block is and you know what capital letters are. But what happens when you put yes. these words together? What does it mean? And, and the terrible weight of that, because if you get this wrong, then your form won't be accepted. Um, and those kind of moments, which, you know, these sort of small moments made huge, um, are, are very affecting. And, and she goes on through this process of trying to find a way out of this state of depression and lethargy and, and what it does to the family. You know, I mean, we assume certain things. We assume that, that if you've been on this incredible journey together as family, it pulls you together. Um, and she'll just tell no. you that no, actually, families who go through that very seldom are actually able to stay together, and how everyone just moves into their separate spaces and into silence. Um, and this very garrulous family became completely silent; they lost their language. Um, and then it was, it ends up with Zaris Halimzai, in fact, running um, an organization that helps refugees, the Refugee Trauma Initiative, that helps refugees who are arriving in Greece. Um, and so on one hand, there's that. And on the other hand, she now sees American withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban gaining power again and this whole thing starting. Um, and I can't recommend it highly enough um, because it, even those of us who think we've thought deeply about what it might mean to come and live in the UK from somewhere else, I think we'll mm -hmm. find that actually there's so much in our assumptions that is faulty or is missing. Yes, I think you're right. Having read it in advance of this episode, I think I was struck by so many of the same things that you're talking about, the the sort of the really mundane details in it that are the things that are the sort of the important parts, right? Like you say, she's not describing the horror of their journey, which I can only imagine mm -hmm. must have been incredibly um, sort of physically traumatic and, and, and hard to um, undertake. 
but the, the process of not being able to fill out forms over mm. here or the mother who keeps she takes everything by hand doesn't she as much as yes. possible because she's not used to having a postal mm. service that works the sort of level of detail that goes into it and all the things that seem so straightforward the fact that when you think you've got to what is supposedly a safe country and then everything that you have to put up in in, in you know when you arrive and that trauma that you carry mm. Um, I don't think I'd ever read anything that quite discussed the trauma to that extent as well. But again, it isn't. She wasn't discussing the trauma of having seen horrific things. It was the trauma of feeling unsafe, of kind of dislocation, of not feeling at home wherever you go and how that follows with you. And then I loved where she made this sort of connection and then explained that any sort of racist attack that would happen in the UK, which did happen to her family, yeah. would just sort of compound these feelings of unsafeness that had followed them mm-hmm. across continents anyway, which was so hard to read, you know, I mean, beautifully written, but very hard to read in the mm-hmm. process. Yeah. I mean, really beautifully written. I mean, I'm just looking at a couple of lines where she's talking about that arrival in London and it's once the excitement of arriving in a new place had worn off, the exhaustion set in. At first, it was physical. The four of us would sleep well past noon and wake up feeling heavy and unrested. Sometime later came grief, like a wave, heavy and very sudden. It would be years before any of us came up for breath. I mean, it's just gorgeous writing. It's beautiful writing. It yeah. really, it really is. I can, and I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that that's what you said. It was the way the sort of the way that the clauses were written, mm-hmm. even in the first sentences, mm-hmm. that grabbed you into this story yeah. because it is a particular um, story. I sort of I'm very fascinated to think about this in relation to some of your mm-hmm. work. Um, I mean, your last novel, Home Fire, was clearly very much influenced by contemporary politics, mm-hmm. as well as being a sort of restaging of one of the most famous ancient Greek Greek dramas, um, Sophocles' Antigone. I'd love to know what sort of maybe in relation to that particular novel or more broadly what sort of came first to you is it the allure of a particularly kind of good story or the desire to try to understand or make sense of what's happening in the world around us or do these come to you as sort of inseparable things that you, you see them coalesce in your mind and, and work out what you want to do with the material I think with with this one what happened was the story came and told me the things that were in my mind that I wanted to understand because in fact it it, um, it started because um, a theatre director called Jitendra Verma, who used to run Tara Arts in South London, said, called me in and said, um, I'd like you to pl- write a play for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't know the first thing about how to write a play. I can barely write a novel. <laughs> um, and, and he said, well, I thought you'd say that, so why don't you adapt a play? Um, and the Greeks are having a real revival at the moment. How about something like Antigone? Um, and I had read Antigone as a university student and to my shame did not remember a word of it you know it was one of those you know those terms where you read sort of 12 Greek tragedies in a row and they all yeah. mesh in your mind um, exactly and I wasn't going to admit that to him and I said oh well let me think about it and I went away um, and and literally looked up plot summary on Wikipedia I'm I'm ashamed to say this. That's how I went. That's the place we all start. It is where we start. (laughs) But the way I remember it, and, you know, I don't trust my own memory, of course, because this seems too perfect. But the way I remember it, I looked at plot summary and I knew immediately. I mean, I could, not that I knew immediately what I want to do with it, but I could see this contemporary story, which was at the moment really in the news headlines of, um, you know, young boys. It was at that point just boys going off, leaving Britain and going to join ISIS. And what I was very interested in already was not so much the boys going, but the families who were left behind. 
um, and the ones who the press were coming for and the ones who had to listen to what the politicians were saying um, about this teenage brother who had gone away. Um, and I just saw Antigone being that story. And it just came together almost immediately in a way that hasn't happened for me ever before um, with another novel. But it was this extraordinary thing of a 2,000-year-old story and that morning's headlines just just embracing each other. Um, wow. And I think it was very useful because I think I wouldn't have known how to tell a story that was happening today with that urgency if I hadn't felt, actually, I'm telling a very, very old story. You know, I think that really sort of gave me a way into it. Um, and of course, it also gave me what you need for a, a novel, which is the characters. Who are the people whose lives are we looking at? I mean, as a novelist, that is ultimately it for me. Whose lives are we looking at? And yes, I do want through that to, uh, for us to be looking at other things and larger things. Um, but the first thing, I mean, an, an, a novel lives and dies uh, with the characters. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Kamala Shamsi about the genesis of her last Women's Prize winning novel, Her Home Fire. Next up, Kamala, I'd love to ask you if you could tell me about a book that's made you think about feminism in a new way. So, you know, I, I, I thought about this, I thought there's so many things I could, you know, from the early days of, of The Awakening or Yellow Wallpaper to reading Toni Morrison, reading Ali Smith. Mm. And but what I kept going back was actually the first moment where I read a piece of fiction and thought about it in connection with women's lives in a way I hadn't before. And that was To the Lighthouse, um, which was, I must have been 18 or so. I was at university. Mm. Um, and, you know, Virginia Woolf was, I think, possibly the only one, woman among a bunch of blokes in, you know, some course on modern literature or something of the sort. Um, and it's very odd to me, Lucy, because, you know, by this time I had read Athia Hussain's novels. I had read Angela Carter. Mm. Um, I had read all kinds of, you know, Anita Desai. Um, and yet, you know, but as I told you, I read, uh, I'd read Athia Hussain without appreciating her. Um, and I know that I I'd enjoyed Anita Desai, but not in the way that I did later. So something was not quite coming together in my reading. And most of the reading I did was books by men. Mm. You know? 
Um, and I remember I have a very, it's an almost sensory memory of reading Virginia Woolf, reading to the lighthouse and feeling the world shift. You know, it, it was almost this, this feeling of breathing differently or coming up for air. Um, and it's something to do with the way Mrs. Ramsey is written about and Lily Briscoe. And partly, I mean, there's the obvious part, which is, of course, Lily Briscoe being told that women can't paint yeah. the way that men can. Uh, that, that, I think, is possibly the more obvious storyline, but it was Mrs. Ramsey. Um, and the way Wolf is so interested in her interior life, although she is what most novelists, most novels I would have read, you know, she would have been a side character or someone who you didn't pay that much attention to. Mm. Um, and the way she was revealed as someone who really you should pay attention to. Um, and the, the idea of a female consciousness, I think, started for me with that book. Um, and, and as a result of that, I think I could read all these women writers differently. You know, and, and that's why I go back to it, because I think, you know, it's not just about the first time you read a woman writing about women's lives, because I'd done that. But it's the first time, perhaps, that you're ready for it. Mm. You know, I think there are books that you read when you're ready for them. Um, and I was at 18, absolutely ready for Virginia Woolf. And she allowed me to go back and, and find Atia Hussein differently and Anita Desai differently and Angela Carter differently. That's such a wonderful way of thinking about it. And I'm not sure I've ever really, I've heard about, you know, people often talk about the right book at the right time, you know, it, it, it unleashes something in you or, or unlocks something in you. But I love that idea of that she then was a sort of route into being able to read other people in a particular way that was then much more formative and sort of important, um, integral to you as a person and probably as a writer as well. But can I confess something, Lucy? I haven't yeah. dared read it since. Oh, well, I was going to say, is it something you return to ever? Ah. I keep one, you know, and it's in, because I've, I've read Mrs. Dalloway several times. And I sort of, in fact, the most recent was about five months ago. Um, and I love it. And I, and I keep meaning to reread to the lighthouse. Mm. You know, it's there, the copy I had when I was 18 is in my shelf in London. And I can, you know, when I lie in bed, I can see it. It's in my, it's almost, it's almost become like the lighthouse itself. You, know? <laughs> you don't quite get there. And it's very strange. And I did think before I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to talk to Lucy about this book. I must reread it. No. And I started, no. And I actually read the first couple of pages and I thought, oh, it's brilliant. I can't go on. It's, it's a very peculiar response. Are you, are you slightly concerned that it might not have the same effect on you second time round? Is it, is it because of the effect it had was so sort of groundbreaking? Like you say, you don't really want to go back and have a, a slightly less vivid response to it. Yeah, I mean, it can't possibly yeah. have the same effect. Be because I read to the lighthouse, it means to the lighthouse can't have the same effect on me, if yeah. that makes any sense. No, no, you of know? course, of course. Um, but, I, but I mean, I, I really must, I must go back. And, you know, there's only one other book in the world that I have this response to, which is a completely different thing, um, which is a book called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I can't, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the author or authors of it. I keep reminding myself and forgetting. Um, and the reason is that when I was 11 years old, I was at my grandparents' house. I was quite bored. And I was looking at my grandfather's bookshelf, which is full of what I thought was very tedious things like Marx and Pliny and Homer in Greek, which was no good to me. Wow. Um, 
And in the middle of all this was a book called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I was like, what is this? And I pulled it out. And it was a book for children. And my grandfather said, I have no idea what this book is. I've never seen it in my life. You can have it. Um, and I took it. And it was about dog heaven. And I had recently, my pet dog had died. And I was devastated. And I read this book. And I wept. And I wept. And I wept. And my best friend came over. And he, too, had recently lost a pet dog. And we would talk about this often. Um, and I said to him, you must read this book. And I have no idea what got into him. And he will tell you, neither does he have any idea what got into him. But he said to me, we should write a book. Wow. And I said, oh, okay. And we, we started a book called A Dog's Life and After. And I haven't stopped writing fiction since. Oh. And, and that some, you know, and in my memory, I gave him the copy of All Dogs Go to Heaven. And then some months later, I said to him, oh, can I have it back? I want to read it again. And he said, you never gave it to me. <gasps> and I said, of course I did. He said, no, you were going to. But then we started writing our own book and, and I never took it. And I know he wasn't lying because we were always, you know, we were, it's not the kind of thing he'd lie about. Uh, it disappeared. Wow. It just vanished. And some years ago, I, I realized, oh, there's a thing called the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and I could go and find it. And I found the book and I found who wrote it. And I found that I could buy a copy and I just didn't. Yeah. You know, so a similar thing. Yeah. Just from that particular moment and you, yeah. you needed it then it unleashed yeah. something, it unlocked something for you, but then you didn't need to go back yeah. to it. That's so. I mean, the difference, the, the difference is of course, I do know that to the lighthouse is really worth going back. to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're definitely encouraging people to read it if they haven't already. But, um, and then do, do you read a lot of other, uh, when you first read To the Lighthouse, did it mean that then you mm. wanted to go and read more Wolf straight away? Did it sort of throw you down that rabbit hole? Um, I didn't read huge ones, but I read Mrs. Dalloway very quickly and I read um, A Room of One's Own. Yeah. Um, and I think I started Orlando and then got a bit stuck. And then, you know, <laughs> you're at university and you're reading a million texts in any case. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful. I love the idea. I, I really love the idea of a book that is that it does something to you. You don't need to read it again. It needs to be... It needs to be the way yeah. that you remember it in your in your mind, right? It needs to be, yeah. it was there at that point in time. And you know that it's always there if you need it, but hopefully you don't need it. You, you had it that one time. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Um, and then my last question for you today, Pamela, is could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, please? So I chose Malala Yousafzai for this mm. for various reasons, but it goes back, I've been thinking about it and I, I realized it goes back to the fact that I recognized very early that I don't have courage. Um, you know, I grew up in Pakistan at a time when there was military dictatorship and I was about, I think I was nine years old when there was this march of women activists onto the the courts because there were the, the dictatorship was passing these reprehensible laws against women. Um, and these women marched onto the court, although they knew there'd be repercussions. And, and the police came and, um, you know, beat them with these sort of long batons called lattes. Um And it, it was a very pivotal moment. I was nine years old. And I remember being so filled with admiration for these women who had done this, despite knowing there were quite likely to be consequences. And I knew age nine, I thought, I couldn't do that. Um, and, and it stayed with me through out because you know through my life um, I've known people of extraordinary courage and there's a great line that the writer Nadeem Aslam once said um, Pakistan produces people of extraordinary bravery but no country should require its citizens to be that courageous 
Mm. Um, and so I've always admired those who have it. Um, and Malala is one of those people for me who really, you know, so she is, she is herself, but when I talk about her, I'm also talking about all those other women um, and men mm. who, who just have that thing, that, that ability to uh, stand up when others cower. Um, and the, the, the ones who will take on the fight. Um, and she started at such a young age. I mean, extraordinarily young. Um, and I've met her a few times. And I remember the first time meeting her and at some point in our conversation, just thinking, oh, okay, you aren't like other people <laughs> um, in her courage. And yet what is remarkable is also, I think that in so many ways she is, I mean, she has one of the most extraordinary senses of humor. I mean, she's a very, very funny, self-deprecating person. Um, but there is this absolute strength, which isn't hubris, um, that I think is amazing. And it's so interesting to think of her and to think of that Zardas Halamzai article together. Mm. Uh, because, of course, there were very different circumstances, but also she, you know, there was, she was shot. And next thing she knows, she's in a new life. She's in a hospital in Britain, and then there's a new life in Birmingham. Um, and I remember that first time I interviewed her. Um, at some point in our conversation, it became clear to me that actually going to a school in, in Birmingham was more traumatic in a certain way than what had happened to her earlier because it was so out of the realm of of, of experience. But I've I've sort of been watching with great admiration over the years. I think it's so hard to be to become famous when you are and you know for these extraordinary reasons when you're a teenager, um, and then to have to navigate the world with immense dignity and continued courage and um, continuing to look at you know what you know, to be aware of the status you have in the world and to think right what can I do with it um, and at the same time to be very funny and to love cricket that's I mean I'm not you're completely right she is an incredibly courageous um, young woman I'm really interested though from what you were just while you were talking just then wondering how much of I always wonder I think more generally mm. how much courage is often a, a response that some people don't have you don't necessarily have the um the sort of the time to maybe think too much about what you're doing before you go and do it I don't know if that's the, the, those women that you were talking about seeing when you were nine standing mm. up for what yeah. they believed in there's obviously mm. a, a, a you know the chance for very thought through acts of courage and kind of valor but sometimes people just respond to the moment and it brings out something in them yes I see what you mean generally I mean, I think it's true we don't know I mean there's that great bit in the sword and the stone right which is one of my favorite books growing up uh, now we've we've moved over to Arthurian legend yeah. um, where where you have Lancelot who has a terrible secret yes you know, the, the secret Lancelot can never tell anyone is that he's afraid of everything. And because he doesn't want people to know he's afraid, he forces himself to do brave things so that mm. people won't know he's afraid. And of course, all of us reading this know that is courage. I mean, courage is overcoming your fear. And yet Lancelot spends the whole time thinking, oh God, I'm a coward. No one must know. I must do another brave thing. So no one knows I'm a coward. You know, so yeah, I mean. Well, this is it. I think courage, I find sort of more generally, courage is such an interesting 
it's yeah. such an interesting kind of thing to think about because I think mm. that courage manifests in different people in different ways. It manifests yeah. what one person thinks as being courageous is not what another person thinks as being courageous. Sometimes it's foisted on people. Sometimes, of course, there are those people you meet who you just think, gosh, they are so, they're the ones who always put themselves out there. They, they have such a kind of courage to them. But then I also think that you saying you don't have courage to me writing kind of writing and particularly writing fiction I feel is such an act of courage on each author's part to put yourself out there in the world to have trust in your in your voice and your ideas do you never think of it like that I suppose if you grew up in a place where you knew the courageous writers were the ones who wrote certain things knowing that they would likely be imprisoned possibly face the death sentence and at best have to go into exile it does really change your idea of what courageous writing is. Right. You know. Yeah. So my idea of it just being you put some fiction out there, it's not quite the same. The context is different, right? The context is, I mean, but it's true. I mean, I, I mean, I, and that isn't to say that for a lot of people, I think we don't want to say that that valor can only be taking on the state in certain ways, because again, that does fall into a certain kind of narrative of, what is heroism? Mm. Um, and if Mrs. Ramsey and Virginia Woolf taught us anything, it's that actually a very quiet moment of picking up a pen can for certain people be an act of extraordinary courage. Um, it's not to diminish that and just to say, I don't think I fall in that category, you know. Yeah. Um, but but I do think I, I, it is true that there is, and I do think that I'm a more courageous writer than I was some years ago. You know, I think I'm I'm willing to look within and to be unpopular and all those kind of things, which I think I, I was less likely to do when I started out. But as you say, it's a different kind of context mm. for the idea of courage. Thank you so much, Kamala. You've given me you've given me so much to think about. So I can only imagine what you've given you know all the listeners are going to be um, hooked to this episode. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Thank you for listening, everyone. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Kamala Shamsi, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. <laughs>